Welcome back for another chat with us at the Ridley Institute podcast. My name is Sam Forniker. I'm your host. Today is April 14th, 2022, Maundy Thursday. So a good Holy Week to you all, or Easter week as the case may be, depending on when you happen to be listening. I'm very excited about today's conversation. I'm joined here by a man whose book, The Call, was put in my hands as an undergraduate. Uh, a man who's contributed much to the project of forming the evangelical mind in our day, Oz Guinness. Oz is a man of many distinctions. He's a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Uh, many will also know him as the founder of the Trinity Forum. Oz is also, of course, a prolific author, having written over 35 books, uh, many of which I'm sure our listeners will know well. Now, recently, Oz has published a remarkable little book with InterVarsity Press entitled The Great Quest invitation to an examined life and a sure path to meaning. That's the particular book I'd love to dig in to with Oz today. Oz, uh, welcome. Thank you. Real pleasure to be on with you, Sam. Oz Guinness, what is the most urgent need, in your view, of our times? Sam, what? <laughs> That's an impossible question. <laughs> You know, even within the very limited sphere of my calling, I'm always trying to make sense of the gospel to the world, and this mm. book serves that. But I'm also always trying to make sense of the world of today to people inside and outside the church so we can live responsibly. So I'm torn. And what I don't have in this book is the broad cultural setting. And if you think for a minute... We're at a civilizational moment. The Western world is history's most powerful civilization, if only because it's now changing the entire world. And yet the faith that made the world has been rejected by the West. And you could say the same thing about America. And here in America, we can see in the last generation the rising tide of those with receding faith the sort of Dover Beach effect for our time. And so you have the religious nuns departing from the church in groves. So that's all the broad cultural context for me. In other words, people need to know how they can come to a rational and deeply responsible faith for themselves. So that's what I'm trying to write about. So there's none of the broad culture in that, in the book, but it's there in my mind anyway. To answer your question in one word, Sam, though, and since most of your audience are followers of Jesus, the central issue for our time is faithfulness. We can expand on that. That would take us in a completely different direction. Well, yeah, per perhaps, it, perhaps it would. Well, uh, much, of, much of this book focuses, doesn't it, on the search for faith and meaning. So before we get to the book, can you, Oz, share with our listeners a little bit about what obstacles you've encountered in your own life and work, uh, whether firsthand or in your observation of the culture, that can hinder people in the pursuit of faith and meaning? Well, you know, I'm an Oxford man. If you just pick up the Oxford short introduction to the meaning of life, it says that the meaning of life is for madmen and comedians. In other words, it's not important. And you can think of a thousand reasons why many Westerners simply don't think about it. We've got too much to live with and too little to live for. 
Or to put it in sort of more historical terms, you know, why don't people think? Well, the two main reasons, one is Blaise Pascal's famous argument that people are suffering from diversions. In other words, the ultimate reality for every one of us inescapably, we're gonna die, we're mortal. But we don't wanna think about that. So we surround ourselves with what he calls diversions. Now in his day, that was rich uh, entertainers and gamblers and so on. You think of our day, triple screen gazing, video games and all that. People can be so surrounded by what's been called weapons of mass distraction that they don't think about the meaning of life for a minute. And that's one major reason. The other one is what's called bargaining. In other words, people do realize it's important. Well, when I've graduated, you know, when, when my kids are a little bit older, when the mortgage is paid off, and, you know, when I've retired and can sit and have time to think. And then, of course, no more laters. And you have in Western literature the Faust figure. And he's prepared because he wants more time, more power, more knowledge, more sexual experience, whatever it is. He's prepared to bargain his soul with the devil. And of course, the devil has read the small print and poor old Faust hasn't. And you think of our Lord's words, tonight, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Bargaining doesn't work and diversion doesn't work. But many in our generation, I mean, Socrates is right. The unexamined life is not worth living. That probably in America is most people. I have a, a friend um, who has worked with a, uh, you wouldn't exactly call it a ministry, um, but something called a Socratic happy hour. And I believe mm -hmm. that the tagline for it was, friends don't let friends lead unexamined lives. Um, and uh, what I love about that is that it highlights the role of good friendships and companionship in, um, in the pursuit of faith and meaning. But you also make the point that this is, um, this is not something that you can, um, as it were, sort of uh, delegate right, or, or assign to another person. Each individual must make this journey, this quest for him or herself. And, uh, and you point out in the book that, that many people, particularly in the age of that interval between 18 and 25, they begin to grapple with these questions in a serious mm -hmm. sort of way. Um, I wonder if it's not too presumptuous. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your, your own experience with those questions in that in that season of life, or if you would like to put it more obliquely, what kind of encouragement uh, might you offer to, to, to listeners who are in that interval of life uh, as they begin to encounter these questions? Well, I raise that because there are certain ways in which people are spurred to think, and that's one of the main ones. I think 18 to 25, the so-called big seven, as Winston Churchill used to call it, now goes on into your 40s. And in the modern world, we have almost an endlessly delayed adolescence. Now, in my case, you know, as you probably know, my parents were medical missionaries. So I grew up with love and prayer and faith all around me. But after two years in the reign of terror under the communists, my parents were allowed to send me home to England. I was nine. So from nine onwards, most of my teenage years, I was at an English boarding school and my parents were thousands of miles away under house arrest 
in China. So for all their love and prayers, I didn't have their immediate influence. My own journey to faith uh, was really, I, I knew enough about Buddhism and a little about Hinduism, so that wasn't attractive by the Eastern religions. I, I'd seen them. So for me, as a teenager, for two years, I read Nietzsche, and I still read him once a year now, and Sartre, but my hero then was Camus. And I loved his passionate existentialist atheism. And then on the other side, uh, Blaise Pascal, Ponce, and above all, G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. And after really two and a half or so years of thinking and reading and the challenge of one person at school with an incredible character in Christian faith, I, I was convinced the Christian faith was true. But then, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. Thank God I am. I say that. You had to think everything back to square one. You couldn't get away with anything. You were challenged. It wasn't just who you believed, what you believed. It was why you believed. And are you sure you know why you believe? So everything was thought through. And I love that. You know, you go to a crossroads in Europe in the 60s. And I hitchhiked from Singapore uh, back through India, hitchhiked for six months back to Europe traveling, going to see why people went to an ashram, I went to an ashram, and so on and so on. But any crossroads in Europe, you'd find half a dozen hitchhikers. One would be reading Nietzsche, one would be reading Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha, one would be reading, hey man, got to read this and go there. It was fascinating. So when I was later at Labrie, the Christian community, at least a third of the people all the time were passionate seekers non-stop arguments. Dinner would always take about three hours. Schaefer would serve soup, and then he'd say, anyone got a question? And when he was traveling, I was in the hot seat. Sometimes, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, people were angry about the Vietnam War. A woman said to me one night, I believe you could have 12 orgasms a night. I remember I was single then. How many do you think as a Christian is normal? Another night, a person looked at me about as close as you are now and said, I want to show you the power of Jesus is nothing. Within two minutes, your eyes are going to be locked into my eyes and you will bow your head to the table. Fortunately, Edith Schaefer heard that in the kitchen and they prayed and broke whatever power he had. But you go from the philosophical to the sexual to the political to the occult in five minutes. And it was that sort of world I realized the gospel is good news. It is the best news ever. But we've got to be open to all comers and all questions. So I, I, I've benefited from the Labrie crowd. He won't be listening to this, but a, a, a good friend, Andrew Fellows, who oh, led friend. the project. Yes, indeed. And so I, I, even though I've never gotten to go and stay in Labrie, um, I feel that I've gotten some of that in my bloodstream now. I've benefited from these sorts of lunches during my time in Cambridge, where you'd sit and these sorts of questions would be uh, would be posed and and dealt with. And it, what a what a powerful thing to sit across the table from people who are far more committed than you are to questions of ultimate depth and meaning, mm -hmm. and to be to be to be roused out of a kind of sleepwalkishness 
that's exactly right. Yeah, at the at the table. You know, but after the 60s, the 70s were called the me decade. And even say the music, which the 60s music is unprecedented. The 70s music increasingly commercialized and so on. And you don't, although the current generation, I think, is rather like the 60s. And I've had better conversations in the last 12 months and for a long time. Which actually b- brings us back to to the book, in which you, you are at you, you are at pains in a number of places to show readers that there are essentially uh, two distinct ways to approach the task of seeking out faith and meaning in life. Uh, one, and these aren't your words, I, I don't think, but one in which we approach the task as an I-it relation one in which we approach the task as an I-you relation. I think you use the terms Helene and Hebrew. Can, can you unfold a little bit of what you mean there? Well, you know, setting out the search, I'm trying to describe the journey for people. So I'm not making the argument. It's not read my book for an hour in an armchair and be convinced and then believe. No. I'm trying to describe what the journey will be. So whether it's five minutes or 50 years, they, the reader, in their lives are doing the journeying. But in the beginning, I just point out there's a huge difference between the Jewish and the Greek ways of thinking it through. So Greece puts all the emphasis on reason. In other words, whatever reason can take you is where you go. And that's fine. And Buddha is essentially the same. I mean, Gautama Buddha, thinking the whole thing through and coming to his conclusion under the Bodhi tree in Varanasi, it's by reason alone. And the same thing would be true, say, of Bertrand Russell, not a Buddhist, but an atheist. And you read his Free Man's Worship, written in Florence. It's where his reason can take him and no more. But of course, the Abrahamic Judaism and the Christian faith, yes, we bring our reason. We're thinking people, we search passionately. But at the end of the day, it is personal. And just as with any friend, you only get to know them if two people open themselves up to each other. It's when we meet God as a person, the ultimate presence. So reason, absolutely, but it's his revelation his disclosure of himself to us. And that's the much more Hebrew, the biblical, the Jewish way. And you've got to encounter that from the beginning and take it into account. In other words, thinking the Greek way, you just, am I thinking carefully? Is is it really as rational as I think? No. Thinking the Hebrew way, the whole person's being addressed. Am I being honest with myself? This is important as am I thinking critically? And so on. So there's a, point in the book where you talk about love and romance and how certainly in love and romance we're, we're not we're not against reason um, it's it's more the case that in this form of a relationship we are uh, we are above reason I mean it reminds me of Lewis's essay on transposition that we're simply with with reason we are trying we're doing our best with the limited tools that we have to do justice to something that requires uh, a, a greater ability than reason can offer to express it or to encompass it. Um, yeah. So so I wonder, you, you talk a little bit about, wh- about the difference 
between a thing being contrary to reason and a thing being above reason, contrary to reason and above reason. I love, you know, Dante's famous little line that reason has short wings. You know, if you take a couple of birds, almost everybody loves penguins. They are lovable, funny, beautiful little creatures. We all love a penguin, but a poor penguin can't fly. Now you take by contrast the albatross. You think of something's an albatross around his neck. It sounds like ill fate and so on. But the albatross, that's totally unfair with his 12 foot wingspan or whatever it is, it is truly the monarch of the air. And if you want to fly, you go for an albatross every time, not a penguin. Now, in the same way, we love reason. Don't misunderstand me. The scientific method is incredibly important. It's given us amazing advantages. And good philosophy is simply good thinking about thinking. So as a follower of Jesus, I'm 100% in favor of reason. And the journey, as I try to outline it, is fully rational. But there's something more because we are more. We are emotions and will as well as mind. And love, like an albatross flying, soars beyond reason. You know, if someone, husband, tries to prove his love to his wife in a philosophical proof, He's not likely to get a hug back. He's likely to get a slap in the cheek, and he'd deserve it. Love goes way beyond syllogisms and philosophical proof. And I personally don't think the so-called theistic proofs work. And I've listened to some of the best people arguing for them in Oxford and in this country. I just don't think they work. And at the end of the day, you're usually very impressed by the arguer, but not by the argument. And as Pascal says, five minutes after you've heard it, you begin to doubt it because it was so complicated. And when you meet the Lord, it's quite a different experience. It's fully rational, but it's more because we're more. Oz, I, I want to dig in on that for just a minute. So when you say that the arguments don't work, that's a pregnant statement, that, that they, they don't work in the sense that they are not sort of logically sound or they don't work in that they don't achieve a thing which ostensibly they seek to be they seek to achieve second Mm, yeah yeah second and people can say so what yeah that's yeah that's right i've i've often thought that about i mean while i'm fully convinced obviously uh about the historicity of the resurrection for example uh and you, you don't say, you don't say so what at the end of that you don't say no you don't you fall on your knees or you walk away as fast as you can yeah no one who meets the living god says so what yeah yeah that's right that's right do you think oz that there's there's a section of your book where you talk about a, a, what seems to be a, a kind of silly debate that goes on in, in particularly in Christian circles between people who argue, oh, well, um, we, we, we must make use of evidences in order to, uh, to bring people to faith. And another group of people that says, no, it's not evidences that matter. It's getting our, it's getting our presuppositions right. 
Um, mm -hmm. how, how, do you, how would you encourage us to situate ourselves you know, practically when we're asking these questions, thinking about our presupposition? So for example, someone might have plenty of evidence to say, I have every reason to believe that a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Um, and yet there might be something else which precludes them from, from actually acknowledging that as a, as a reality. You think of our Lord saying, you know, even if the rich man had someone to go back to his relatives, hmm. and someone rose from the dead in front of them, they still wouldn't believe. Or you think of someone like, say, Arthur Kessler, who was very open about the fact when he was a Marxist, his Marxism acted as a filter. You could have given him any evidence you like, and it would all been filtered away into his Marxist worldview. In other words, just I've been a follower of Jesus 60 years now. Hmm. Two of the most fruitless debates, one is sovereignty and significance. Hmm. You get into that. It's not either or, it's both and. Now, the same is true of the other fruitless debates between evidences and presuppositions. It is both and, and which of them, when? Hmm. Now, of course, we're not discussing the stages of the book that I've set out, but stage one is a time for questions. In other words, life is thrown into a question by, for some reason, which means not that people come to believe anything. This is where the Freudians got it all wrong. Mm. It's not we have a question and a need, and therefore we believe. No. People believe because they no longer believe what they used to believe. So the question throws into question their past belief. And when that's shattered, they look for a new belief, and they're much more open. So until that time comes, a time for questions, they're convinced of what they believe. Hmm. Maybe they've never thought about it. Maybe they're thoroughly convinced of atheism or whatever it is. But while they're convinced of anything or just complacent in anything, nothing will get through to them. And to give them evidences, say, for the resurrection at that stage is like water off a duck's back. Hmm. But someone begins to be a seeker, stage one, a time for questions. And then stage two, they're looking for answers. Now, when they're looking for answers, they're actually looking for new presuppositions, a new worldview with all its assumptions, which will be adequate and illuminating to provide the answers their first belief didn't. Now, when they're drawn towards one of them out of the many on offer, then the third question, a time for evidence, is you have to say, yes, this is illuminating, this is incredible, but is it true? Hmm and so on. So you can go on down the line. So evidences are crucial, presuppositions are crucial, but the question is which, when? And then, of course, as we're talking to people, where are they today? So the idea of a kind of four laws approach, one size fits all, is terrible. Hmm. You've got to listen to people and love them to discover where they are on the journey. Of course, many people hardly starting. Yeah. And then address the good news that Jesus exactly to where they are. Do you know, in, in that sense, every believer is really, uh, we're, we're, a, we're all a chaplain to, our, to those with whom we're in relationship, aren't we? I mean, mm -hmm. you, you say at one point, we are not simply embarking upon an argument with someone. 
or we rather, when we are seeking out faith and meaning, we are not simply embarking upon an argument. We are embarking upon an adventure. And the thing about adventures is they're dangerous. You, you, you don't know where they're going to lead. You don't know what you're going to encounter. Um, it might not be a happy ending, right? There's always the risk, as you point out, that in the search for answers, um, well, perhaps the answer is there is no answer. And that's the answer that you you arrive with. Now, of course, we don't believe that, but that's that's the risk that we're asking our friends. That's the particular barrel we're asking them to look down. What are we asking people to surrender or to engage in when we ask them not just to buy into an argument, but to embark upon an adventure? Well, we know we're followers of Jesus. In other words, our Lord is a person. You take, say, the way Moses encountered God at the burning bush at Mount Sinai, the ultimate presence. So we're out to introduce people to the presence of God. God is open to them, but they have to be open to the Lord, emotionally, morally, as well as intellectually. You know, as I say quite clearly, this is not an armchair argument. So you read the book or you listen to X, Y, and Z speak, and then you're convinced. No, you've got to get into life. The word existential is greatly overused today, almost a cliche. But the idea, existence, our lives have to be staked on something. So as you search, you're looking for something that's going to make the ultimate meaning on which you prepared to stake and hang your entire life. And that's terrific. And when people take it seriously like that, a whole person is involved. Now, of course, after stage one, when people are challenged by a question, it, there is a time when they send out their minds like a scout. If I've been tripped up or wounded or challenged in some way, I don't want to put myself out in line. So I send my mind out in a scout to think through. I want to find an answer. Come back with an answer for me, and then I'll look at it more carefully. So that stage is not the whole person. It's the mind sent out to be the scout to look for a better answer than the seeker had before. And that's what they do. And as I, you know, I used to talk with Dallas Willard, you might say there are a thousand and one answers in the room. And there are intellectually, theoretically. But in fact, there are only three big families of faiths which share a sense of the ultimate view of reality. And when you see it that way, that you have the Eastern family, Hinduism, the Reform movement of Buddhism, and then all the California New Age movements and so on. And they all go back to the same idea of an impersonal ground of being. And then you have the secularist family, atheists, agnostics, materialists, and everything goes back ultimately to chance and determinism. And then, of course, you have the Abrahamic family, which in the West is supremely Judaism and the Christian faith. And everything goes back ultimately to a personal, infinite, transcendent God. Now, the differences between them are incredible. And the differences make all the difference in terms of individual questions. And so the seekers looking, examining, comparing. But at that stage, stage two, it's the mind doing the work. This is the point at which us, we're seeking out answers, yes, uh, to the questions, questions which we've asked, um, 
the questions which have opened up holes in our previous presuppositions, gaps in our worldviews. What, in your view, constitutes a good answer? Well, there's two things at that stage too, a time for answers. One is adequacy, and the other is illumination. We don't ask the truth questions to start with. You look for something solidly satisfying. Does it really throw light on my problem and where I am today? Adequacy and illumination, those are the two criteria in that second session. Now, of course, you can have a thousand people's questions. Um, for me, talking to many people on campuses and individually, I would say I've had more questions along the lines of human dignity and the problem of evil than maybe any other question over the years. And you can see there, I mean, look at the Hindu view of human dignity. Freedom in the Hinduism is freedom from individuality, not freedom to be an individual. Freedom is the word moksha in Sanskrit, release, release from being me, because each of us is essentially illusory and egotistic. You don't have a high view of human dignity there. Now, you, I remember meeting Bertrand Russell as a student. I've known Christopher Hitchens and some of the other great atheists. In their system, human dignity and freedom is do-it-yourself. Bertrand Russell used to quote, you know, the Greek atlas, a giant atlas, who carried his own world on his own shoulders. That's great when you're 18 to 25 and you're rich and you're wealthy and you can travel the world. But for most people, that's impossible. Do it yourself. Now look at the third family of faith. What's human dignity? We're made in the image and likeness of God. So someone could be what the Hindus consider untouchable, a Dalit, precious in the eyes of God, uneducated, maybe handicapped, maybe terribly whatever, precious in the eyes of God. And so in the third family of faiths, the biblical, the Christian, the Jewish, we're defined upwards in relation to the Lord. Whereas for the atheists, we're defined downwards. You know, in Oxford, I'm 100 yards from Richard Dawkins' house, the selfish gene. Where I worked was next door to Desmond Morris's house, the naked ape. Atheists define you downwards, but there's no fulfillment if we're only selfish genes and naked apes and all that sort of thing. It's when we're defined upwards in terms of our creator, the Lord. So I'm only saying all that because differences make a difference. And that Phase two is a time for questions. It's essentially comparative. That was a new idea for me of the way in which we can be defined downward, um, for example, by evolutionary, by atheistic evolutionary biologists, or defined upward according to the, according to the image of God. So answers are key. Um, but they're also key, and you point this out, because they shape the way that we perceive the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And one question that I wanted to ask, Oz, is do you think that all worldviews, how do I put this? Do all worldviews shape the way that we perceive equally? Um, or is there some sense in which uh, a, a one worldview might enable someone to perceive more fully or in a different way, while another worldview might hinder uh, or occlude our 
our vision? Does the question make sense? Oh, sure. You know, people refer to a worldview as, as lenses through which we see. I prefer to see it deeper than that. They're a world, a worldview, within the world, which makes the world a difference. And adequacy is important because some worldviews focus on this and some worldviews focus on that. What is true, in other words, true to the nature of reality, should be comprehensive. It'll cover everything. Now, of course, we know as Christians, sometimes we within the Christian faith major on this, that, and the other, and we forget the other parts, and they need to be recovered. And that's part of what Reformation is from time to time and so on. But there are some worldviews that simply can't make it. I mean, for example, you take, say, Plato's cave or Peter Berger's comment of the modern world. It's a world without windows. No atheist will ever appreciate the supernatural. You have a tragedy of someone like Darwin, who late in life could not appreciate the Messiah. The beauty which had so moved him earlier as he thought more and more solely within the realm of science, he was tone deaf. And that's absolutely tragic. So many worldviews are thoroughly deficient at very crucial points. I was saying, ransack Hinduism till you're a thousand years old. You'll never find a high view of human dignity. Ransack atheism till you're a thousand years old, and you'll never have anything that gets you outside the world of the five senses. Sorry, they simply can't. You know, you remember Hamlet to Horatio. There's more in heaven and earth Horatio than is dreamt of in your philosophy. So that's a mark of the inadequacy that comes up in stage two. Now, the Christian faith answers all questions. Do we keep always keep on doing justice to all that we discover? No, because our own little finite worldviews, we shrink the Christian faith, sadly, very often. But the faith itself is comprehensive, fully adequate, and thoroughly illuminating. You're a Cambridge man. I'm an Oxford man. I love sitting under our library, Dominus Illuminatio Mea, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light. The light of the gospel shines on the whole of life and leaves nothing out. Speaking about worldviews, about lenses, we are using the image of seeing, right, of vision, which is a biblically sanctioned image. One day we will see him face to face. Um, you point out, though, that you know now uh, seeing must give way to a different kind of interaction. Uh, there's a quote from, I believe it's from Aristotle's Metaphysics, where he speaks of seeing as the, you know, it's the height of knowing. And he basically, he says something to the effect of, the thing about seeing that's so great is that you can see something and you don't have to do anything about it. And I thought Aristotle was really being honest <laughs> there. Because of that relation, I think, seeing is at least now this side of glory, sort of a second best way for, for speaking about our relationship to the Lord, right? Because there's no sense, as you said earlier, in which we see him and then don't have to do anything. Uh, mm -hmm. His presence commands our response. So how would you, if not seeing, uh, then what other way do we have of 
relating to the to the Lord and and therefore envisaging our uh, our you know our, our our journey, our pursuit of faith and meaning. I mentioned earlier the the Greeks, it's reason alone, and for modern people, reason alone. For the Jews and the Bible, it's reason plus revelation. But here the big difference is the modern world and the typical world through the centuries is visual, whereas the Bible is audio. Now, that's incredibly important, as you know, Rabbi Sachs often points out, many of our modern intellectual worlds are, are, are to connect it with sight. Oh, I see. We talk foresight, hindsight, insight, and you could go on down the line. Everything's seen in terms of, of, of the visual, and we're in an age of photography and images and icons and so on, and none of those are biblical. So what's the heart of Judaism? Shema, hear, O Israel. And as the rabbis point out, there is no Hebrew word for obey, nothing like Islamic submission. Why? It's here. In other words, it's not just physical, it's spiritual and moral. And the word Shema has the idea of hearing, deliberating and debating and then deciding. In other words, there's a freely chosen consent, even in the very hearing, or, or go wider than that. Um, you take, say, the first words to Abraham were words. The Lord spoke to Abraham. Now, that's amazing. The same word that we know created the world, that there be and there was, called Abraham. And it all begins in a word. So we as Jews and Christians are people of words, not sights. And, of course, in Scripture, sight is connected with images that are false and temptation that is seductive, and so on. When Eve saw the fruit, etc., etc., you can see how sight is seductive and often connected with images which are blasphemy, whereas the challenge is to hear. Now, as you said earlier, through this life, we only hear the Lord. And then the day we die, for the first time, we not only hear him, we see him which is the glory of the Jewish and Christian faith. So I love that. So we should be people who are audio-related and not visually related. And there's far too much of the wrong sort today. As I, I think that's right. I, I appreciate you going into that at such length, and it puts me right back. I have always appreciated and continue to grow in my appreciation for this very reason the the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer, the order for morning prayer, um, classically constantly sends us to Psalm ninety five, uh, which of course about halfway through today, if ye will hear his voice, of mm -hmm. course we're we're this is the immediate run up to the reading of God's word. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. I mean, it is, it would be, it would be so, um, it'd be so good for our sort of ego and pride, wouldn't it? If we were more in the position of, you know, John the, John the seer in, Reve in Revelation um, or of indeed of ourselves on the other side of, of the eschaton, um, 
where in fact we're here in we're here in the book of numbers the rabbi even point out you take say the reading of scripture when you have a book your eye can look at the word you're reading aloud but can also see a couple of lines down and you can't do that when you hear the word and of course in the scriptures they heard it most people didn't read it you have to wait till the next word or the next sentence to make sense of it. So you're engaged in a completely different, you're not remote standing back. You have to be truly engaged in order to listen. That's, that's very good. Again, you've said to, to hear is not just to take in the information, it is to deliberate and to obey. You wrap up with commitment. To what extent is commitment the end of something? Or to what extent or in what sense? Is it rather a, a beginning? Uh, for the person who's listening, considering these questions, nervous about commitment, what would you say to them? Well, commitment is a bad word today. We're commitment shy because in a consumer society, you have to be open. I mean, when cars were invented, Mercedes, Benz, built a car that would last. Henry Ford called his models by the year. They were built not to last. In other words, the more you turned over, the more they were able to sell. Well, with that in mentality, a consumer never wants to choose finally. There'll always be a better iPhone. iPhone 10 will be better for my own five. And so it goes. So as modern people, we're commitment shy. And you know the notion, better to travel hopefully than ever arrive, which is one of the most stupid things ever. So the commitment to Jesus is final. It's the whole person making that final full-hearted commission. But that's the end of the journey to faith, but it's only the beginning of the journey of faith. And we've got to see that our Christian life is an incredible journeying and growth and adventure in knowing the Lord. I, I, I think I said I came to Christ in the 60s. One of the first books I was given to read was George Whitfield's Journals, another Oxford man. And one line has stuck in my mind ever since. He said something like, I am never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. In other words, if you sit down and relax and grow complacent and comfortable, you never grow. Take a risk. Put yourself out deeper than you can imagine. Launch out into the deep, as Jesus said to Peter. You know, when you're on the full stretch for God, you grow. I never, when I went to an ashram, Francis Schaeffer said to me, if it's spiritually too tough, get out. It was intellectually and spiritually very challenging. But the day I suddenly saw the vast difference between Hinduism and the gospel, I worshipped the Lord for that difference and came out far more sure of my faith than when I went in. When I was doing my doctorate at Oxford, I was in the sociology of knowledge, which is one of the most mind-spinning relativistic areas of philosophy. But again, when I broke through and saw the relationship of truth and relativity and so on, my faith was deepened immeasurably. And I've always found that. 
risk everything, go deeper, and then your faith grows as your life goes on. Oz, I'll confess to you, I, I came to the book with a hesitation about <laughs> the figurative use of the word journey. Uh, but by the end of it, everything in me wanted to be right there with C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald in The Great Divorce and with Dante and Virgil in The Divine Comedy. I hope, listener, that this is a book you will pick up and offer to a friend uh, on the verge of that journey now. Os Guinness, The Great Quest, Invitation to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning, out now with InterVarsity Press. Um, Oz, it's been a true pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. Well, a great pleasure for me, Sam. Happy Easter and God bless. Thank you. You as well. Folks, um, join us in the weeks ahead. I'll be accompanied again for a new installment of the new Parker Society Library by my good friends Jake Griesel and Steve Tong for the first of two discussions of the writings of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Further conversations on the Ridley Institute podcast are also in the pipeline. Really excited about chatting with Gracie Olmsted, Jake Meter, and Norman Wiersba, among others. As ever, this is Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute podcast.